Our scripture reading this morning comes from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear God's word to us. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, I think the greatest temptation awaiting the downtown campus is to fall asleep after you've eaten that wonderful brunch out there. So, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you thought it was going to be really serious. It's not. Here, I'm going to do my best to preach and to keep you awake <laughs> after that delicious brunch. And you got to do your best to stay awake with me because those eggs and casserole will do nothing better than actually lull you to sleep. So hang with me. Hang with me this morning. Hey, good morning. We are celebrating five years here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, and it's great to be with you. Yeah, why don't you? Yeah, Rachel, thank you. Yeah. 
And if you are new, you're wondering who I am. I'm Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here um, at this campus. And um, man, it is such a joy to be with you. I had so much fun just running and chasing my kids around while we were eating food. It was awesome. And if you are new, you're, you're wondering, where, what are we talking about this morning? Well, we're smack dab in the middle of a series. We're exploring what it means to live life without control. To live life without control. Because if we're honest with ourselves, it seems like every conversation, every news outlet, every Facebook wall post, you know, every talk radio show, they're all talking about how everything is undergoing these great transitions, this moment of, of monumental change. And it can feel like the world is spinning. And some would even say spinning out of control, right? But listen, this morning, in the midst of all of that, we can hear alarming you know, trends from social commentators, from economists, and even you know, from opinion polls. But we as the people of God, as we stand here and we ask, where do we go next? We should have a different response. As everybody's asking, where do we go from here? If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you may be even be noticing some of the changes that are ongoing that, that have some, some of their own challenges with them. In the United States, we're undergoing a, a paradigm shift where Orthodox Christianity more and more is seen less as help to flourishing community, less as a reasonable option, and more radical and a threat to flourishing community. And if that's the water we swim in, Listen, I, I don't want to be an alarmist. I don't want to be a fear monger. I think the Christian, many Christians have been super guilty of like stirring up fear. That's not our response. Our response is people of hope, right? As people of hope who are anchor our identity in the resurrection of Jesus, people who don't hear our call to comfort, but instead to pick up our cross and follow Jesus that both affirm the good things we see in culture and the broken things we see in culture, a, a people who understand that no matter where we stand, there is a call to respond with hope. Where do we go from here? In the midst of this transition, as things are changing, how do we change our response appropriately, thoughtfully? How does that change the way you engage work tomorrow morning when you go in at 9 a.m., 8 a.m., 7 a.m., 6 a.m., right? <laughs> Depending on the season that you're in at work, how does that change the way you engage coworkers, the conversations you have with your boss? Maybe you're in here and you lead and you're in a place of strategic implementation in your organization, how does that change the way you think about organizational trajectory or organizational structure? If you're here and you're a student, how does that change the way you, you engage in conversation with other students, the questions you're asking? How does that change the way you engage professors when you're there at that study group on a Thursday night? If you're part of a family and you're engaging your neighbors, you're you're a single person, you're engaging your neighbors, how does that change the way you engage neighborhood initiatives? All of these questions are rolling around in the midst of this transition, in the midst of this time of change, and we're asking ourselves, where do we go from here? And how do these changes impact me, right? Well, this question, it came to a head for a family in Olympia, Washington. For nearly four generations, the Stormans have owned and operate, operated Ralph's and Bayview Thriftways. These are some independent neighborhood grocery stores that were part of the fabric of these neighborhoods and these communities. And they've always sought to run their businesses in consistent uh, fashion with their, their faith in Jesus Christ. And so as they were trying to live out their faith in their workspace and not just isolate it to a Sunday morning event, but really let their faith impact all that they do all of their lives, they begin to ask, okay, how does this impact how we engage employees? How does this change the way in which we impact our community? How does this change the way 
and the things that we keep in stock on our shelves. And so as followers of Jesus who see that all of life has dignity and sanctity and because all of human being, every human being is made in the image of God, even at the moment of conception in the midst of so much mystery where science can't even answer all the questions, we know there's this initial very framework of the DNA of a human person. How, 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 how do we stand there as Christians and what does that do for us as business owners in terms of the products we keep on our shelves? And so they chose not to carry any abortifacent products, specifically the morning after pill called Plan B. And what they chose to do is to train their employees. If somebody came in asking for that pill, that, to recommend them to one of the 30 nearby pharmacies that do carry the morning after pill. But for them, they're going to choose not to carry that particular drug. Well, at that time, a, a series of pro-abortion activists began protesting the store, blocking entrances and encouraging a boycott of the store. And in 2007, um, the intensity got so great amidst some pro-abortion groups, the governor of Washington and others, the Pharmacy Commission issued new regulations that designed to prohibit pharmacies from referring Plan B customers for religious reasons. So the Stormans, they found themselves at this critical now what moment. Okay, if, if, we can't, if we can't refer because of religious convictions, we either need to now start selling Plan B we need to get rid of our company, or we need to file a lawsuit. And in the midst of this cultural climate we find ourselves, they chose to file. And so in the first federal trial, it was after 12 days, 22 witnesses, and some 800 exhibits, the court ruled in favor of the Stormans that they are allowed out of conviction to not carry a particular product that did not align with their faith convictions. But the state interveners, actually represented by Planned Parenthood, appealed to the Ninth Circuit who reversed the trial court's decision. So in one more attempt, the Stormans, they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and just June 28th of this year, the Supreme Court denied the review. So the Stormans are in that now what moment again. What are we to do? Either sell Plan B, which goes against our convictions, or get rid of our company. What would you do if you were in their shoes? What do you think they should do? There's a powerful word, should. In the midst of these transitions, these are the kinds of questions we need to be asking ourselves. And listen, up to this point in the series, we've been talking about the absolute importance that this isn't the first step. We should be winsome and thoughtful as we engage people who disagree with those who follow Jesus and even find themselves in direct um, confrontation with those who follow Jesus. That's not our, this isn't our first step, but there are moments when your convictions will clash with culture and standing up has the potential of losing all. What do we do in those moments? What do you do when what is right no longer seems reasonable or is even legal? When you're standing up for your convictions and you're confronted by real evil and the negotiations are going nowhere. In other words, what do you do when there's no way out? What do you do when there's no way out? When you've committed to what you know before you go, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But in the face of that, you're going to lose it all. Maybe it'll cost you a relationship. Maybe, maybe just maybe it'll cost you a claim or fame or acceptance. Maybe it'll cost you your five-year plan. You had this perfect track for career, and now you have to rewrite it all or throw the whole thing out the window. Maybe it'll cost you financial security. What do you do when there's no way out? Now... The good news, I think, here is that 
we aren't the first of God's people to ask this question. Actually, God's people, when they're living into their identity as God's people, seeking to follow God's design, we have always sought to stand up and stand out when it causes, calls us to at different points. Depending on the culture you find yourself in, it may be over different issues. And this morning, we're going to return to a book that, although it's over 2,500 years ago, I think it's just as relevant for God's people today as it was then. It's the book of Daniel. And Daniel... Man, he had a rough story, a really, really rough story. We often highlight the ways that he had all these great things that happened, and God really did come through in amazing ways. But he had a really, really, really hard story. And when he looks back over his life, he sees the invisible God doing monumental things in a way that hindsight always helps us see 2020, doesn't it? And so he's looking over his whole life lived, and he sees the way God is working. And this morning, we're going to look at Daniel's three friends. When they come, to themselves, they come to this point in their own lives where they're asking, what do we do when there's no way out, okay? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, if you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 739. Now, while you're turning there, while you're turning there, um, we find King Nebuchadnezzar kind of doing what King Nebi does, right? Except he kind of outdoes himself a little bit here. Um, he makes this image of gold that's roughly 90 feet high and nine feet wide. And just to give you some perspective, if you were to walk out this door and look up basically to the upper right, you would find the TWA Moonliner Rocket 2. So from the roof to the top of that rocket, it's about 22 feet high. So I want you to understand that King Nebuchadnezzar's image is about four times that height. And it's situated on a plane, which means there's nothing to obstruct anybody seeing it from miles out. Now, one thing we don't know about um, this image is whether this was uh, an image of one of the Babylonian gods, right? Maybe it was made after Nebu, which Nebuchadnezzar was named after, which would be pretty arrogant. Or it was just a straight-up glorified selfie, right? Yes, they've been around for a while. So he was, we don't, we don't exactly know, but one thing we know is that he sends every government official from every one of his provinces kind of this party invite, and it goes something like, congratulations, you're invited to the mandatory meeting of the king. Please RSVP or die. Thanks. You know, oh, bring a casserole, right? A little bit different than what we just did. But when they get there, you know, when the orchestra plays, they're all supposed to find themselves on their face. And I want you to just wrestle with this. Call it what you want. It could be homage to the king. You know, it could be your civil duty, survival. Anyway, you want to you try to finagle your way. But basically what he's saying is, look, I've conquered you and I want you to bow to my gods. This is kind of like the guy, <laughs> the bully who stole your lunch money and then he's holding you in a headlock and he's like, compliment the shoes I just bought with the money I stole from you. It's like, come on. Maybe I'm venting some stories in my life. But here... <laughs> <clears throat> Some of you are like, what are you talking about, Gabe? Get over it. Um, but reality is this guy, he raped and pillaged these people, and now he invites them to a party that he threw for himself and said, if you don't bow to my gods, I'm going to burn you alive. Well, then we're going to dance, aren't we? And sure enough, the music starts, and the text says everybody, I mean, thousands upon thousands of people, right? They're following the motions, and they end up on their face. And the text, it has this tension because it says, all these people... And what we come to find is not everybody, not everybody bows. You come up with this glorious picture and all these people are bowing and then suddenly you find out that not everybody, not everybody bowed. 
some of the native Babylonians, the locals, they're called Chaldeans, they go and tell King Neb, and they're, pretty, they're probably pretty jealous that the, these Jewish foreigners have come and have a significant uh, place of influence. Remember, chapter 2, Daniel, right? The king said, hey, I'm going to kill all of you guys unless you tell me my dream and interpret it. And they're like, why don't you just tell us the dream, king? And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not. Why don't you tell me the dream? And Daniel goes and prays, and God reveals to him the dream and the interpretation of that dream. And out of that, he's promoted, and Daniel brings some of his boys with him, and they also get promoted. And so a lot of the locals are pretty ticked that these Jewish guys have gotten some influence. And so they come to King Neb, and they start stroking his ego. This is what you do with an egomaniac, right? So look here at verse 10. You, O king, this is my paraphrase, you, O king, have made a decree that when the music plays, like all those instruments with bagpipes and Irishmen or whatever, when the music plays, everyone's supposed to bow down to your golden image or they're to die. Well, there are these guys whom you've given influence to and they pay no attention to you. They don't show you respect nor serve your gods and the golden image you set up. I mean, if you're an egomaniac, there's no way and even if you're not, the way they've worded it, there's no way you're not going to take that personal. <laughs> there's no way you're not going to take that personal. And so in verse 15, we see that, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's ticked, and so he brings the boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he brings them in, and he gives them the ultimatum of all ultimatums. He's like, look, 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 I don't know what you got going on in your lives, all right, but why don't you just get on your knees, bow to my idol, or I'll just throw you in the furnace behind me, all right? Why don't you guys just be smart? Come on. I mean, how could, <laughs> how are you supposed to respond to something like that? Because listen, Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't care whether they worship their God. There are thousands upon thousands of gods rep represented in Babylon, just as long as they also bow down to his God. They don't care. Most people, listen, most people don't care whether you go to church on Sunday. Most people don't care if you read your Bible. Just leave it there. And make sure you come and worship the right God when it's time. And here's the deal. This is where it starts to get really uncomfortable because in the Babylonian culture, there was this great celebration of pluralism, which is really quite in line with the way we see Western culture today, this celebration of pluralism. And in a culture where everyone's right, God's people will always appear in the wrong. In a culture where everyone's right, God's people will always appear in the wrong. In some way, shape, or form, at some moment along the way, God's people will always appear in the wrong. Because they may not care whether you go to church on Sunday. They may not care whether you read your Bible. But when you go into work, you better not. And this is, where, this is where it starts to sound. This is where you start to hear the claims of ignorance. This is where you start to hear the claims that you're offensive when you say that I worship the one true God. And all other gods are false. And I will not bow down to your gods. And this one true God actually guides me in a unique, unique way of living that sets me apart from the other God's ways of living. So I can't do that. I won't do that. Or I feel called to do something that you disagree with. And there's this place where it really becomes quite offensive because in a culture where everyone's right, being a part of God's people will always make you appear in the wrong in some way, shape, or form. And when you do that, the party starts to go south. You know, the, the party favors aren't nearly as exciting. Everybody stops dancing, right? And they say, hey, when the music plays, fine, do whatever you want, but you better still bow. And isn't that what happened to the Stormans? That's fine, fine, do your shop, but, but you still got to get in line when the music plays, right? And listen, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he's not a fool. 
These guys are the Mockingjay, aren't they? <laughs> right? Okay. I just thought that might wake up some people after they had casserole. But, but because they, they don't listen. <laughs> There's not really recovering, is there? Now, the <clears throat> their defiance, their defiance, it just reveals how fragile this empire is. If somebody stands up to the empire, somebody who dare to stand up to the one emperor over the whole known world, who has the iron fist, supposedly the blessing of the gods, and these guys say no? Hence the threat from Nebuchadnezzar. He has to snuff this out before it begins to leak out. And if you get to verse 16, it seems as if like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they already knew this was coming because they don't deliberate. They're not like, okay, guys, like now what? Oh man, I didn't think we would get this far, you know? No, they've already made up their mind. And how do they respond to this emperor of the known world? They say, we don't have to answer to you on this. We don't have to answer to you on this. In other words, you're not the ultimate king. And then in verse 17, this is what we read. This is, this is amazing. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Listen, king. Our God can save us. I know you don't think anybody can save us out of your hands. I know you think you're the bee's knees. I know you think you're the top cheese, whatever. But listen, our God can. But, but listen, even if he doesn't, don't miss that. Even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. And there's nothing to stir up an egomaniac by just giving him like, hey, no matter what you do, we're not going to bow. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> the egomaniac loves a challenge, right? So he tells him, I want you to heat up the, the furnace three times its heat, which is a way of saying as hot as it's ever been. And I'm going to get the strongest of my soldiers. It makes, this, it makes this real awkward, like the mighty men of Babylon. These mighty soldiers come and they tie up these weak little three Jewish guys by their, you know, by their cloaks. And he's like, I want you to throw them in the fire. And the fire's so hot that the guys who throw them in the fire die on the way and King Nebuchadnezzar, since he's a bit of a sadist, he grabs some wine, some cheese, some grapes, gets in his chair, like his AMC kind of experience, reclines. And he's got like this little window at the bottom of the furnace. And as he's drinking, it's like, wait a second. <laughs> hey, hey, I thought, I, thought there were, I thought there were just three guys in there. And I can't help but think if he's drinking wine, he like looks at the glass and he's like, like one too many for me. Like that's my limit. I'm seeing not double, but like four when there were three. Hey guys, I thought you threw in three and the soldiers are like, hey, we threw in three. Have you guys seen Harry? Did Harry fall in? Like what's, what's the deal? And the king's like, well, maybe I'm crazy, but, but I'm actually seeing four people in there. And one of those guys is like the son of the gods. Like, what do you say if you're the soldier? <laughs> no, king, you're not crazy. <laughs> There are four guys in there, and they're not burning, right? Like, what are you supposed to say? And then I love what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 26. He's so nonchalant, or at least it seems that way in the text. Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, why don't you guys get out of there? <laughs> These guys are standing in a furnace hotter than it's ever been. Why don't you guys just come on out? Come on, let's talk about what's happening here. <laughs> and you know... I love the details of a story. Just remember, when, they're, when this, this is being handed down to us, every detail is hand-copied. So none of these details are throwaway details. It's not like they had their Espen printer at home and they're like, oh, I'm going to make this copy for Joe. No, like there's these guys that are just hand-copying all of this. So when you have these extra details, they're not extra. So the very fact 
that we read that when they come out of the furnace, what are we in the, we're in the season of autumn right now, aren't we? And what's one of my favorite, one of my favorite things is to like be around a bonfire, you know, carving pumpkins. But every time you leave a bonfire, you smell like a bonfire, right? Exactly. And yet what we find here is that these guys don't smell like burnt hair, which is awful. They don't even smell like a bonfire. This is, what, this, this is so crucial to understand, the level to which God goes to protect these guys and to really make a statement. And then it ends with everyone who was there for this party that was to celebrate this golden image, everyone who was there to pay homage to Nebuchadnezzar watches as these three Jewish guys and the God of Israel put all of that to shame. And then Nebuchadnezzar, being Nebuchadnezzar, says, you know, your God is the most high and anybody who disagrees, I'm gonna cut off their arms. It's like, Nebi, come on. Like, just chill out with the arm cutting thing. Like, can't we figure something else out? And then he gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego this promotion. And it's this beautiful, glorious ending to the story. It's like everything is at the end, you know, with this beautiful bow on top. And, and, and I want you to listen to this. If you commit to what you know before you go, God really can deliver you. There's something so groundbreaking to genuinely know and believe that God can. Who can really comfort you when you're down? Who can really bring rescue and escape when you're financially in despair? Who can restore your marriage or those relationships? Who, who can save you from the furnace? God can. He's powerful enough. He's wise enough. He's involved enough. He's not some faraway God who just made the world into this big clock and wound it up and backed away, but he's actually engaged in his world and he can provide comfort. He can provide peace. He can provide care and relief. And when we stand up in allegiance to him alone, when a whole world bows, he can come through in ways that leave us dumbfounded. The God that we worship is beyond what we often fathom. He really can deliver. And I say that because, here, listen to me this morning, God can because he already has, because God has before. He has before. It's not like some faith in faith, like these good warm fuzzies or, because that, or some blind optimism. That's not what faith that God calls us to is. It's not some stepping out into the great abyss. Instead, God can and because God has before, we can trust he still can today. He's already proven himself to be faithful in the ways he's worked in history. The same God who created the world with the very breath, the same God who parted the Red Sea for Israel, the same God who brought Israel into the promised land, the same God who entered this world in human flesh, the same God who then died on the cross. And when all of his disciples scattered, Somehow, three days later, when he rose again, those same disciples that ran and kind of gave up on this whole initiative suddenly were back and saying that he rose, that they had actually experienced him. Some even said, I had breakfast with him on the beach in Galilee. And so they gave their lives for what they said they saw. Not because they had this blind faith, but because in space and time, they saw the resurrected Lord. And they said, if, if Jesus really did come back from the dead, then my life is his because he's the Lord of the universe. And if God can do that, he can do anything. And we hear that Peter gave his life by being crucified upside down. And over 2,000 years, when Jesus made the promise in Matthew chapter 16 that not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church, here we are five years into another local expression of that, and God continues to carry us on. 
And if he can do that, and he can do anything, our God can. And I have confidence because God has before. And listen, I hold that truth dear. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I do. I mean, seriously. I hold that truth dear because without that, then the gospel has no resurrection. There is no incarnation. There is no Red Sea moment. And none of us have hope. God can. But I don't think that's why Daniel's writing this story for all people throughout history and for you and for me. I think it's there, and I don't think we can miss it, but I don't think that's the main point. So even as we come to address that question and we're wrestling through, okay, how does what God has done in history change the way I'm living today? How does it change the way I'm going to go into my workspace tomorrow at 9 a.m.? How is it going to change the way I engage my community? How does that inform even for the Stormans their response? And listen, in a culture where everyone's right, God's people will always appear in the wrong Somehow, in some way, and when you've tried everything and there's no way out, here's what we learn right here. And don't miss this. We need to be a people who really believe God can, but even if he doesn't. God can, but even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. Look with me again at verse 17. I love the way the New American Standard translates the original Aramaic this way. It says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. God can, but even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we, will not go, we, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God can, but even if he doesn't, God can, but even if he doesn't. And I don't think that's my normal posture the way I live. <laughs> this is a sermon to me just as much as it's a sermon to us. I'm sitting underneath this word and I, I want to grow. But I, when I have conversations with others, when I do some, own, my, some of my own heart work, I, I find that I tend to lean into one or two dangerous postures rather than standing, even when I know he might not two dangerous postures that I think will steal hope and stir anxiety. And here's the first one. Instead of saying God can, but even if he doesn't, sometimes I just want to say, well, as if God really can. And I begin to doubt either one that God is actually in control or he doesn't care. I begin to doubt that God is actually in control and that he actually cares for me. This usually happens when, I've, when, I've, when something really painful has hit my life and I start just getting jaded. I don't know, has anybody else been there? You, you just, you pain enters or you start to get cynical with relationships because people have let you down one too many times. And it just feels like you, you, you find yourself in kind of like this hopeless place of fate. Yeah, as if God really can. And it starts to... I mean, when you come to this story, this is kind of a mind-blowing story. I was reading through it again this week, and, you know, as I was preparing for this morning, and I'm thinking, okay, really? Like, they came out of a furnace, and they didn't even smell like smoke? Like, come on. As if God really could do that. And it's that level of doubt that creeps in, and it steals our hope, and it stirs anxiety, and it destroys us from the inside out. And it starts to sound like this in the various aspects of our lives. We start saying, as if God can really bring victory against this addiction. As if God can really restore this relationship over here. 
as if God can actually transform a community, as if God will really take care of my family if I do stand here or take care of my own finances if I don't give in to that, as if God really can. And so we try to take back control because we doubt that he's got it. And it just becomes another wrestling match with God. That's the first posture I think that's so dangerous that we often lean into is that the as if God really can posture. But I think there's another one that's just as dangerous that I sometimes oscillate towards. And it's the God can, but if only he does. God can, but if only he does. Where the first one you doubt that God actually is in control. The second one makes demands on God because his control is not good enough. And it's a way of like manipulating God rather than trusting him. God, you know, I, I really think you can, but if only you bring that job. God, I think you can, but if only you bring that promotion, if only you bring that spouse, if only you bring healing, if only you bring fill in the blank, whatever that essential core element is. And when he doesn't, you're gonna find yourself bankrupt because you realize you've been worshiping someone other than God. You've placed someone higher than God and you've sought to manipulate God rather than trust him. Whereas as if thinking doubts that God's in control, only if thinking demands and tries to be in control. It's one of those two postures, I think, that will leave us falling on our face to the gods of Babylon rather than standing firm. And we can tell ourselves there are a bunch of different things, but in reality, it's just another form of bowing. But instead, what we see here in verses 17 and 18 in such a well-known story is this firm confidence in God's character and his competency, while at the same time an utter submission and surrender to his plan. God can. Oh, he can. And I know he can because he has before. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, I will stand. So I want to ask you this morning, you know, as you think about your life and you think about driving into work or walking into work tomorrow, I want you to think about this question. What in your life can you not say even if he doesn't? What in your life can you not say even if he doesn't. If you're called to commit to what you know before you go and you know it's, you're gonna lose everything or maybe that one thing, that if you were to lose it, him or her, it'll feel like everything, right? Let's not fool ourselves and really think everything is everything. Sometimes one thing feels like everything and it's the most cherished thing in our lives, the most cherished person in our lives. What in your life can you not say even if he doesn't? even if he doesn't. And listen, I know that's not, a, that's not an easy question and that's not a simple answer. That's why I want you to take this next week and just pray through that. Don't let that end this morning. Write it down. Process it. When you're engaging God's word, be asking and praying that God would reveal this in your heart because we so easily deceive ourselves. And the reason, listen, the reason I think that we can have hope and we can stand even with the fear of losing it all. And we can say God can, but even if he doesn't, is because he never will abandon you. I can say God can, but even if he doesn't, because I know he never will abandon you. Isn't that what we see in the Psalms? Psalm 23, 
Even though I walk through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It's about God's presence with us. Not trying to chart out the program that God has to now follow, but his presence with us. And isn't that what we see in our story? I mean, the courage of these guys, it isn't found in some predetermined outcome that they're going to be delivered. If you put yourself in their sandals, they have seen such a painful, painful story. They were trafficked from Israel to Babylon as slaves to the king to be his wise men. And they saw family members die. And so when they stand there and say, hey, king, I know you want us to bow, and I know our God can, can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, they're really with the, wrestling with the concept that they're going to die in that moment. You need to understand, it's not like they have some special revelation that <laughs> I'm going to make it through. This is really death that they're staring their face into. They feel the, the heat from the furnace from afar. The intimidating glare of King Nebuchadnezzar. And yeah, they see a God who can deliver them from the furnace because they see more than the furnace. They see the God that's with them. A God that actually goes through the furnace more often than he does takes us from the furnace. A God who walks with us through the furnace more often than a God who brings us away from the furnace. And in the words of King Nebuchadnezzar, no other God can save in this way. Remember, this is the guy who said, what God can actually save you from my hand? And when he sees the unique way, as Isaiah says, my ways are not, or as Isaiah is recording the words of God, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, you find King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of this story saying, no other God can save in this way. This is never the way I would have charted out. Never could I have imagined I'm looking into a furnace and I'm seeing not three, but a fourth. Somehow God has been in there with them. What is going on? No other God can save in this way. And it's in those moments, those moments when life is at its hottest, when you find yourself in the furnace, believe it or not, those are the exact moments that God's glory is most on display. Because in that moment, the king could have never planned. He brings all of his best leaders, everybody, to come and glory in himself, and God undercuts it all. And before all of these leaders, who is the victor? Through the furnace, God is portrayed as the most glorious, the God of Israel, the most high God. And he slowly, don't miss this, is wooing Nebuchadnezzar, a guy who's raped, pillaged, and one of the most awful men in history. Doesn't that speak to God's grace? Time and again, he just keeps wooing Nebuchadnezzar, and next week we're gonna see that God raptures his heart, and this dude becomes a follower of Yahweh. I mean, it is unbelievable that speaks to God's grace and the way he's working, and he's doing it through the furnace, not from the furnace. You see, it's in those moments that are the most difficult, those moments that just feel like they burn in your heart. That's often the places that God's glory is leaking out of our lives to a broken and dying world. And when I think about the downtown campus, you know, this morning it's our birthday party if the balloons haven't given it away, right? I think back over the past five years, and there have been some moments where we say, God can, but even if he doesn't, there were some facilities that fell through. There were moments where we asked the question, God, what are you doing? God can, but even if he doesn't. And when I think about us as, as a campus, and when I think about the next five years, I hope and I pray, even for myself as a person, as followers of Jesus, we would be the kind of church who understands 
That in a culture where everyone's right, there are going to be moments where we're going to appear wrong. There are going to be moments where we're called to commit to what we know before we go, and it's going to cost us everything. And we should know that God can, but because, because God has before, and instead of saying, as if God really can, and instead of saying, God can, but only if he, we say, yeah, God can, but even if he doesn't. May that be our story as a campus. May that be our story in each of your stories in your various vocations and callings throughout the week as you engage family members, friends, neighbors. Because listen, it's in those moments when you feel like everything's going to hit the fan. Those are the moments where God's glory is brilliantly on display. When in 1 Peter, he reminds us that there are going to be times when you're enduring great suffering and it's not because of evil and people are going to ask, where does this hope come from? I can't wait to see what God does. May we be a people who says God can, who say God can, but even if he doesn't. Let's pray. God, I know, there are, I know there's a lot of pain in this room. I know there's a lot of questions. I know even as I was wrestling with this text in my own heart and mind, I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of stuff to work through. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to convict us with the truth and guide us to more faithful following of Jesus where flourishing really does endure, even in the midst of persecution. God, I pray that you would continue to guide, to guide us as a campus and guide each of those folks that are here this morning, each of us, to remember the gospel, to remember who you are, that even when you sent your son Jesus to live a life we couldn't live, he too went to the cross, and he didn't go around it, Instead, he went through the cross. And your glory is most beautifully displayed on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf through absolute suffering for humanity. And so we hear our call to pick up our cross and follow him. For the joy of the resurrection awaits all who are Christ's. And God, may we know that, that you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. Even when we don't see you, even when we don't feel you, you are with us. May we hang on to that promise as we seek to proclaim, yes, you can, but even if you don't. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.